Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History at Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I cannot complain. So I was thinking with uh, 1 million downloads, we need to be thinking about who we should be taking seed money from. Okay. All right. I'm interested. What, what are you thinking? So I'm narrow, I narrowed it down to either George Soros or Charles Koch. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so do you want to be part of the uh the open society foundations or do you want to be part of the coctopus <laughs> well um yeah, or we can just take of... money from pfizer <laughs> big pharma <laughs> yeah what do you who do you want to who do you want to tout to? who do you want to sell your soul to uh yeah. the coctopus sounds funny uh but the co- I know. Admittedly, I'm probably leaning towards the uh, Open Societies Foundations. Be Sounds part of uh, being Antifa. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Sounds a little less maniacal than the Coctopus. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Not everything that they touch is bad. For example, they no. do fund the Quincy Institute, which I read all the time. Charles mm-hmm. Koch and George Soros. Mm-hmm. Um. So not everything they touch is the Koch bad, brothers but... gave a lot of money to the to the um, Natural History Museum, and I love that in New York. Yeah. So yeah, they have a whole wing. It's easy to say like I would never take money from from like major donors like that. However, let's just say if someone from uh, uh, who represented Charles Koch or George Soros reached out to us and said, "Hey, uh, we want to give you five million dollars to really invest in this podcast and make it mm-hmm. a mainstream show." I'd be mm-hmm. like, uh, well, uh, uh, mm-hmm. it'd be really hard to say Maybe. no to. But the, the unfortunate yeah. point, the unfortunate point is that there's always like a, uh, there's a nobody's just giving you money for the sake of giving you money. Right? Yeah, there's a course. reason why they're giving me money, uh, and that's why like media, you know, you always got to be leery about like where the funding for media comes from or what the parent company that owns the media corporation, and that's why it's funny that you'll see sometimes I'll do these disclosures when they're talking about a particular subject that is related to their parent company you know and they'll have to like disclose that and you know they might be being objective but immediately once they say that it's like oh wait (laughs) what you're about to say might be bullshit you know uh so in terms of media that's one thing but if uh if george soros or charles coke just wants to give me five million dollars for no reason like with no strings attached hell yeah i'm taking that shit (laughs) it's interesting though if you read like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, all the time you see guys like writing articles about like, oh, we need to invest. Like we're way behind the drone technology or we're way behind on the hypersonic missile race. And mm-hmm. you'll look at that person, you'll do a little bit of digging, and then you'll find out that person's a lobbyist for, for Raytheon. Exactly. Like with one Google search. <laughs> and they don't disclose exactly. that at exactly. all. It's yeah. just like, yeah. oh, we need that's, to that's sell. That's the worst part. Yeah. 
it's 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 really crazy and like mm-hmm. when you think about it the whole it's it's kind of crazy when you see um like pharmaceutical products mm-hmm. um advertise on major news networks because those are the major um advertisers for like cnn and, and fox right. news and msnbc because mm-hmm. how often are you going to the doctor and then asking for a medication that you saw on tv never never, never the, what never happens is you have symptoms and your doctor uh prescribes you. you a medication yeah. not you're yeah. like hey i saw this uh, ad on uh rachel maddow of something that will make me happy and not see aliens when i go to bed so right. it's or maybe it will make me see aliens but make me happy but um right. <laughs> yeah it's weird and then you'll also see like ads uh and like the wall street journal for uh, Raytheon, like what the who the hell is reading a like a, an ad from Raytheon is like oh like I'm gonna buy a fucking missile, I'm gonna buy a um, a missile detection system or Boeing. Mm-hmm. Like why is Boeing advertising on on, uh, on the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times? I have no idea. Maybe so that they can. I mean, they might be just advertising for the sake of you buying their stock, right? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, they might be advertising perhaps as a recruitment effort, right? Hey, come work for Boeing, right? I'm sure they pay a lot. And I'm sure they have great benefits, you know? Um, but you're right. It does seem kind of weird, you know, that they advertise these things. And and back to the, the, the pharmaceutical bit, I think it's funny because if you were to go to your doctor and say, I would like X, Y, or Z drug, I feel like that's kind of frowned upon, right? Like you don't go to your doctor and say, I want this drug, right? Like I feel like they, they look at you weird. Like if I were yeah, to go to a, like, a okay, doctor and be like, pillhead. exactly, yeah, exactly. It's like if, if I, you know, maybe maybe I'm having trouble focusing, and I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna go to my doctor and ask for like Adderall, right? Because maybe I have ADHD, and I went to my doctor and I said, I think I, I want Adderall. They're gonna be like, you're either selling the shit or you are addicted to it, and they're gonna be less likely to want to want to give it to me. Right, they're going to need to run tests and do an evaluation anyway. So I, I find it very weird that that those medical advertisements even exist at all. It's weird. It, it, it's it's weird in every other every other uh, commercial. Well, it's funny. Tucker Carlson, the only person to advertise. If you watch an episode of Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. you have the weirdest fucking advertisers in the world. Michael Lindell basically oh, sponsors Michael, that Michael show. With but at least that makes sense because. <laughs> At least that makes sense because he has a consumer product, right? As yeah. stupid as that guy is, you know, uh, and I'm sure his pillows are at, okay at best, right? I have a my pillow. It's honestly, it's not. It's not my favorite pillow I own. Well, that's that. That's false advertising because he said it would be. <laughs> so you know, there it is. As crazy as big of a crackhead. Well, I guess he's recovering. Got to give him credit for that. But he's fucking nuts. He's a um, nutbag. Yeah. But it's not just not it's not just Mike Lindell. It's like other real crazy commercials. Um, you just have to watch it. Like a lot of religious, like kind of cultish commercials are on. It's it's strange. But the reason why he takes those ads is because no one else advertises on Tucker Carlson. That's right. So he has to. He's kind of resorted to, uh, or they're resorted to taking a lot of money to just advertise for MyPillow.com. What does that um, say about Tucker Carlson in his show, though? <laughs> it shows that he's fighting the establishment. That's what it's showing. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> so, in other words, here's something that I know you're going to be interested in uh, before uh-huh. we jump into the main topic. So, sure. Britney Watch, because oh, we've, been, we've been covering this. Mm-hmm. And um, Britney Spears, 
allegedly chased her sister with a knife. That's what Jamie Lynn Spears Mm -hmm. is saying. And Mm -hmm. we've been advocating for her release for, you know, a better off and like a year or or, or her freedom from her uh, conservatorship there or whatever. And uh, look what happened. It's been what, a month, two months? Your girl's already wiling out or do you think this is bullshit? No. So first of all, I read the article that you sent and she's saying that this happened before. This happened prior, right? That... Uh, allegedly Britney Spears had locked her in a room and had a knife, right? Okay, so it shows that I didn't read the article. I just said, hey, ha, ha, ha. So, no, you saw the headline, you were like, oh, I saw the headline and I just sent it to you. And I was like, hey, what's going on? Let's take take Danny down a peg. He's on the wrong side of history here. No, uh, according to the article, and by the way, the the article is from the U.S. Sun, which is a total tabloid, right? So let's, let's take that with a grain of salt. But allegedly... Jamie, Jamie Lynn Spears says that she locked her in a room in the past, but it doesn't say when this happened, like how long ago it happened. Was it before the conservatorship? Was it during the conservatorship? Nothing happened. And secondly, you just have to, be- it begs the question, like if this is true, wouldn't you have gone to the police about that? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that have been news in the past? I think the fact that things like this, and this is coming out of like interviews that Jamie Lynn is giving because she's writing a memoir, right? And um, this is allegedly going to be included in the memoir. I think, and this is my personal opinion, I have no evidence for this, but I think that people like Jamie Lynn Spears, as well as the rest of the Spears family and other people who locked Britney up in a conservatorship for 13 years, you know, I think they're all trying to save face. And they're, I mean, you, you see a lot of it, like they're throwing each other under the bus. They don't want anything to do with each other. I just recently heard that like uh, the mother, whose name eludes me at the moment, Britney Spears' mom un, unfriended Jamie Lynn, the, the daughter, and now they're not friends on Instagram anymore. Like they blocked each other or some shit like that, right? So there's a lot of turmoil going on in the Spears household at the moment, and it all surrounds the fact that Britney's out. And Britney had been very open and vocal about the fact that like she's going she's gonna to come after them, you know, legally speaking. Um, not with a knife, <laughs> you know, like legally speaking, because they did wrong her, you know, and there's so much evidence of that. And I think they're all fucking, they are freaking out right now. So they're trying to tell their own narrative and save their own ass. But, you know, that's up to the court to decide. And if this was true and, and Britney Spears did do that, you know, my question is why, what, why weren't the police called? You know, why wasn't a restraining order set up? What's what's the deal there, and why are you only now talking about it? Yeah, you think that would have been mentioned in court, right? If, right, it would so. have been mentioned in court, and I hadn't I hadn't heard any of that, you know. And you would think that she would have talked about it, you know, during the height of the Free Britney movement, right? To be like, hey, no, no, she's actually crazy. Look at this one thing that she did to me, you know? Yeah, that's a fair. But the point. fact that it's it's only coming out now, like, what's your motivation? Why now? Why are you talking about okay. this now? And I don't okay, want to victim so, blame here. Maybe it did happen. Let's just give her the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Maybe it did happen, right? What's the backstory behind that? I know it doesn't justify. Maybe she was being a lock- bitch. Yeah. Maybe she deserves. <laughs> it doesn't it justify you lo- getting locked in a room and like being threatened with a knife. But I, I want to know what the whole story is. You know. Yeah. So, and that's what, what, what did you do to her? You should ask yourself, why did you <laughs> threaten me with a knife before well, I start? That's like telling a rape stone. It's like, well, what were you wearing? You know, like. Oh. 
that's it's it's a fucked up way to look at it but like i think the context is important especially because there's a mountain of evidence that that suggests that jamie lynn spears and her father and her mother and literally all the people in her orbit took a lot of advantage and did a lot of wrong things to britney you know so you know i I need to know the whole story all right well I guess we're, we're still we're we're still on Team Brittany, all right. I guess is that, that the status. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're still on Team Brittany. Um, all right, let's get to the topic. Yeah, Henry, what the hell happened in Kazakhstan last week? So, this is a bizarre story, and I think it's worth dedicating some time on. Last week, there were protests throughout the entire country of Kazakhstan that manifested into a giant riot in Almaty, which is Kazakhstan's largest city. And riots probably a too light of a term. It was, um, I think, the most violent day in Kazakhstan's history since the fall of the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, there are estimates that around 225 people were killed, including um, 18 police officers. And three of these police officers were allegedly beheaded. So they were their heads were cut off. And uh, I think it's safe to say these, these protests probably, it's probably not the correct term at this point. They, uh, they seized the airport. Um, government buildings were burned down. Um, a lot of businesses were looted. There is, um, so there's this um, really important museum in Almaty. So there's um, a lot of like ancient artifacts from Central Asia. And looters broke into this museum and they tried to steal this ancient Scythian armor. Oh man, not the city so, of armor. Imagine, but it's it's kind of funny, right? Like they <laughs> yeah. broke into. Imagine if um, there was a giant riot in New York City and someone broke into the Met and tried to steal like samurai armor. <laughs> and then they ran through the streets rioting in samurai armor. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what I would do if I was rioting. Yeah. I would I would <laughs> riot. I'm not saying I would ever riot, but that would be something I would loot. If I wasn't a looting frenzy, it would be samurai armor or yeah scythian armor so i can kind of uh see that yeah uh, but you know something else you'll find interesting is that um so kazakhstan is the second largest country for bitcoin mining i didn't know and that there was a government forced internet shutdown during these riots and uh they disrupted a lot of these mining operations oh no wonder my crypto is down <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know the full reason of why. If and I don't know if, if because that was a couple about a week ago at this point, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's um, it's it was kind of crazy that you it know, can't be event. unrelated. Yeah, so all uh, around ten thousand people were detained and arrested. Um, you know, the chaos was so out of control that you know the state did not have the ability to control the violence. So um, President Takayev he requested help from the CSTO. So that's the Russian-led version of NATO. Uh, It includes Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, mainly because uh, Takayev, apparently he didn't trust the the Kazakh services because he recently had replaced a bunch of the commanders. And um, in response, Putin, he deployed 2,500 Russian-led CSTO troops to Almaty to mainly just... uh, secure important facilities there because um you know like the airport that was like one of the the number one priority but in addition to that the russians lease out a space facility there 
it's always been the heart of like the so the old Soviet space program, and um, in the Russian press, this was obviously a way bigger deal because it's closer to home. Um, in and also Russia and Kazakhstan, you know, they have the largest border on the planet. About twenty five percent of Kazakhstan's uh, population is Russian speaking. So um, all, Russia also conducts uh, anti-ballistic missile testing within Kazakhstan. So it's like an important strategic um, ally and, and area for them. And, um, you know, of course, it was part of the Soviet Union for, for many years. Um, of course, with the Russians moving in, though, you know, Blinken, Anthony Blinken was like, hey, once the Russians are in your house, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to leave. But, you know, imagine the Secretary of State saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the Russians, I think, are, are basically, I think the 19th is like their last day to, to go, uh, but they're, you know, apparently on their way out. Oh, they have, a, they have an out date? That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. So I, I guess, you know, that's a crazy-ass story. And, you know, it begs the question, like, why? Like, how did this all start? Yeah, so it's real interesting. So on the surface, and it's confusing too. So this is a you know a complicated subject. On the surface, it was sparked by a sharp increase in fuel prices, but it developed into a larger protest against the corruption of the oligarchs running the country. And um, you know, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan has been ruled by a strong man named Nursultan Nurzabayev. Um, and you know, through this period, Kazakhstan experienced. You know, one of the strongest performing economies out of all the, you know, the old Soviet states um, in Central Asia with their oil production representing a very large percentage of their economic growth. And uh, Kazakhstan also has 40 percent of the world's uranium sources. You know, it, it's it's funny because I think it's easy to think of Borat when you think of Kazakhstan. Right. Like I've never heard of, of the country Kazakhstan before the um, the Sasha uh, born Cohen character. Um, in the movie, when the movie came out, you know that nice. Like I'm from yeah. Kazakhstan. I never really heard of that country. This was what 15 years ago, almost. Mm-hmm. I was in high school, I think, when this movie came out. So um, I yeah. think a lot of people's impression of Kazakhstan is that it's some kind of backwater. Like, where the fuck is this place on the map? Um, is this actually even a real country or is this a fictional country made up for the show type of thing? Yeah, it's not Wakanda. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, me neither, honestly. Uh, and and I didn't know about Kazakhstan before the movie. And, and what was so fascinating about this was that when I was doing research for this particular episode, I just noticed how much my opinion of what a Kazakhstan looks like was shaped by Borat. Like watching these videos and the interviews and things like that, like they look nothing like Sasha Baron Cohen, which is, I guess, kind of the whole point to the irony of that particular movie. Like the fact that a comedian can trick stupid Americans into believing whatever, including, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, a, a Jewish guy, an Israeli Jewish guy, is what Kazakhstani people look like. And that's what they sound like, you know? Uh, it, I think the, it just really puts things in perspective, you know. The opening uh, segment of that uh, movie, I think the movie is hilarious. By I the think way. it's gold. Cool. Like yeah, I still amazing. think the movie is hilarious. Yeah. But the opening segment when he's in the backwater village and he's like making out with his sister, uh-huh. they're just make they make they draw uh, 
Kazakhstanis as the most like depraved backwater people on the planet. Yep. He's like, this is village retard. Like, like he's yeah. low IQ. He's in cage. Right. <laughs> like it's it's funny, but you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, in hindsight, it was. The movie is incredibly offensive, but incredibly <laughs> funny. Offensive. You know, and and I have to for a moment just like check myself because I got I got got. You know, like I knew the movie was a movie and it was funny and it. You know, it's it's funny to see you know Borat trick people like fucking you know, uh, Ron Paul, you know, and shit like that, where he traps him in a room in, in a hotel room and like tries to do something sexual with him. You know, that that's funny because you're like, ah, ha, ha, he got caught. He's gullible. Right. But I'm sitting here not understanding the fact that I was gullible and I still under, I still thought that maybe Kazakhstani people look like that or sound like that. I was getting got this whole time and I didn't even know, yeah. you know? Well, Something so the major cities in Kazakhstan they're highly subsidized. Right. So if you look at cities like Almaty and Nur Sultan, they're beautiful cities. Like Nur Sultan, the capital, which you know recently changed its name, um, it has like these beautiful cathedrals and mosques everywhere. Um, they have like a lot of landmarks, like the the they have like this really um, this this um, really cool like site tower. Uh, the I think it's called the Beiteric Tower. Um, they have like a lot of like sick gardens and shit like that. Like it's a beautiful city. It's kind of like Riyadh, like a, like, a, like a subsidized city. But you know, despite these subsidies, there's a lot of corruption there. You know, there's a handful of families that basically, you know, steal money from the state and their national industries, and then they invest that money into UK real estate, which is like the classic playbook for the you know the post-Soviet Union oligarchs. So um, Nazarbayev. You know, he stepped down. He steps down as president in 2019. Um, his prime minister, uh, Takayev, he becomes president, but Nazarbayev he retains power, and he was given the honorary title of leader of the nation. Yep. And fun fact, I know you, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but Tokayev he changed the name of the capital from Astana to Nur Sultan, and he named it after Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. So. Another, and, and another it's important. Bit. Yeah, yeah. It's important to know that Nazarbayev he he stepped down, but he still has powers. So you know he has the, like the father of the nation title. Mm-hmm. And we t- we talked about this like probably when this happened about two years ago. It's been mm-hmm. a while since we last talked about this. But Nazar- when he stepped down, um, Nazarbayev he still remained in their security council. He's their security council chairman. So it was supposed to be meant as like a long transition of power where. You know, this guy has been president for 30 years. There, he's His name literally was the only name on the ballot for a couple of these elections. Um, you know, he was a strong man dictator. So this was like their attempt at transitioning him out of power. So a lot of people fucking hated him. Like a lot of people hate Nazarbayev in, in Kazakhstan, especially in a places on, in the western um, part of the country where um, a lot of the petroleum and oil fields and gas fields um, are located. So... The protests started on um, the 1st of January uh, into the 2nd day of January after there was a decision in, in, well, in the province of, I can't really pronounce it, Mangus, Mangasau. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Mangasau? Probably. Mangasau. Probably. Yeah. All right. Well, forgive me for mispronouncing that. I think it's called Mangasau. And it was after a decision to liberalize the prices of liquefied petroleum gas. 
which is you know the gas that you use to pump your car so um for your car which effectively doubled the price so it went from um, 60 tang per liter to which is 14 cents to about 28 cents so it doubled the price in gas and then it quickly developed into this social and political protest movement and the protesters they demanded that the former president Nazarbayev be stripped from all of his remaining official duties hold on so i just did a quick google search because i'm shit at metric so you're saying 60 tang is 14 cents and they were charging that per liter uh, yeah, it was about fifty or sixty. Um, I might not. I might be a little bit wrong off the conversion, but I think it was about sixty or fifty tang, and it, and it doubled. Right to one hundred and twenty. Well, just for context, one liter for us Americans out there who don't know liters uh, is 0.26 uh, gallons. So that means you multiply the fourteen cents by four, which is. And I can't do math in my head like that. It's 56 cents a gallon. Double that, that's like a dollar twelve per gallon. So I just want to point out that their gas was fucking cheap in the first place. But of course they have a much lower GDP than us. So they, they, they also make less money. So that's something to think about, but that's incredibly cheap. But you double yeah, it's that incredibly price. cheap for, for U.S. standards, but yeah. they're a, an oil and gas producing nation. Right. So the fact that their price has doubled and, you know, the, the average uh, person in Kazakhstan who's driving a, mo- a car is not making the same wages. Of course not. Of course not. I, I guess I'm just making. putting it into context, you know, yeah. and saying like, so we, we produce oil and gas too, right? Uh, but, you know, a lot of us here in the States are bitching about high gas prices and blaming Biden about it, Right. And in some ways, maybe he's responsible. In some ways, maybe not. But the point is that our gas prices haven't doubled, right? So it's kind of crazy. Well, you know, I'd rather be bitching about high gas prices than bitching about, like, making $100 a month. Yeah, same. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're very you know? privileged. Yeah, very, very privileged. Like, if people just make less money. Right. Um, you know, they can spend... You know, services cost less in other countries, but usually commodities and uh, finished goods cost a lot more. So, mm-hmm. you know, you may be able to get a haircut for a cheaper price in, in, a, in a country that um, in, in a developing country. But, you know, buying a finished good or a finished product is like almost impossible, like a TV Mm-hmm. Um, like from Sony, yeah, or something like that, like one, like a, some kind of a luxury item that we kind of take it for granted in the states. Mm-hmm. You know, you really they don't really have access to that. No. Um, but yeah, I sent you over a Wall Street Journal article that was published on on January sixth. Yep. January sixth, a oh, day okay. in infamy. Um, on Dan- January sixth. Right. So um, yeah, I can. Read why don't that. you go ahead and, and and read that for sure? So uh, it reads. Although triggered by a sharp rise in fuel prices, the protests in Kazakhstan quickly swelled amid general discontent with the regime that has held power since the fall of the Soviet Union. Demonstrations have taken aim at economic woes and the country's authoritarian political system, which allows for little dissent. Economic protests in recent years took on a more political tone after ex-president Nur Sultan Nazarbayev left office in 2019 after nearly three decades as leader. He designated Mr. Tokayev, 
a former prime minister and speaker of the Senate as a successor, while retaining influence as head of the Security Council. Mr. Tokayev renamed the country's capital Nur Sultan after Mr. Nazarbayev and appointed the ex-president's daughter to the powerful role of speaker of the Senate. Opposition parties remained largely excluded from political life, protests were often banned, and activist leaders arrested. The Kazakhstan government has repeatedly promised to address high-level corruption in addition to better sharing the wealth of the country's natural resources and overhauling its authoritarian political system. Little has happened. Frequent promises of mass privatization of state assets, touted in the West as a sign of reform, have fallen short. The country's foreign ministry Thursday described attacks on government buildings at the height of the protests as evidence of high-level coordination and planning, pointing to how demonstrators briefly seized the airport and disrupted flights. It proved that the country faced an armed incursion by terrorist groups trained abroad, it said. Russia's foreign ministry concurred, describing the protests as an attempt inspired from outside to undermine the security and the integrity of the state by force, using trained and organized armed formations. It said Russia will continue to consult with Kazakhstan and other allies on how to help Kazakh security forces combat the alleged threat. So the Russians and uh, Takayev have been saying that they've been hinting that the West has been behind this violent uprising. And, um, you know, my immediate reaction is that it's like, yeah, like it seems absolutely like it's a color. It's some sort of color revolution. And our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should, too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so, you know, blogs like Moon of Alabama um, and a lot of other... Um, 
kind of a, I don't want to say, a lot of like anti-war type outlets are, um, or anti-empire type outlets. You know, they're writing that that this was a step in the Rand Corporation's playbook to weaken Russia. Here we go with the Moon of Alabama conspiracies. Let me hear it. So, I'm, listen, man, <laughs> I, I enjoy reading Moon of Alabama. I say it again. I think it's interesting. You know, it's, it is conspiratorial in mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff they write. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they, base, what they write is that, or Bernard, who, who's like the main blogger there, right. he um, uses this 2019 Rand Corporation uh, published plan for soft attacks on Russia. It's called Extending Russia. And what it does, it lists five ways to weaken, to weaken Russia, which are, well, I'm going to read them out. So, A, it's provide lethal aid to Ukraine. That is, we did that already. The United States has provided lethal aid to Ukraine. Um, increase support to the Syrian rebels. Um, you know, they did that up to the Trump, to, to the Trump. They came up, up to Trump coming to office. Um, exploit tensions in the South Caucasus. So I guess if you attribute the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia to the U.S., but I think that's kind of a stretch. A little bit. And then, um, then if you then uh, reduce Russian influence in Central Asia, so that's like the step that you know where that the that the Pentagon is on right now is reducing uh, Russian influence in Central Asia, meaning uh, countries like Kazakhstan and uh, and uh, Kyrgyzstan and you know these. Um, all the stands, former former Soviet uh, satellite states. So, this riot was definitely coordinated, like without a doubt. Like it's easy. It, this wasn't like some. It, it it started off as a protest, but it was obviously subverted into a, a very violent, coordinated um, movement to uh, overthrow the government there, or at the very least, cause as much chaos as as possible. Um, now, right now, I don't know how much evidence that the U.S. was involved. Um, I'm not an expert on how these NGOs work, and um, you know, and, and um, you know how they coordinate with intelligence agencies to take over countries. And I don't really know enough about Kazakhstan to really come up with an come up with an educated conclusion or hypothesis of what exactly happened. You know, I'm just doing the best I can to take you know some of the mainstream sources from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and then looking at um, some of the more, uh, you know, more Russian media um, and European media, and then looking through Twitter to see, you know, what what exactly happened because it's complicated. So um, I'm still trying to parse that out, and I haven't had time to cross-reference everything I've I've uh, read uh, to confirm a lot of the noise that's come out. So I just want to be really clear about about this um, as we jump into, you know, some of the. Um, accounts that happened during this riot yeah i mean i'm in the same boat with this one a whole lot of government sponsored narratives being thrown around and it's really hard to figure out what's true and what isn't at this point right now yeah take everything that we read with a grain of salt (laughs) yeah and we have i think we we both don't really have that much experience commentating on central asia so it's not like we're um, any type of authorities, you know, it, we, we have a lot more experience commentating on the Middle East mm-hmm. um, than Central Asia. But the the Rand Corporation paper that a lot of people are sourcing, I, I've read this paper and I've sourced it in other episodes. Like I've um, used this paper as a source 
from other episodes that we've done in the past, mm-hmm. um, talking about Ukraine mostly. But um, I don't think this paper amounts to a smoking gun because the Rand Corporation writes a lot of crazy stuff. And, um, you know, a writer of a Rand Corporation paper uh, the other day, he came out and actually wrote an op-ed at, um, fuck, where did he write it? Mm, I want to say Financial Times. Um, the guy, this guy wrote a paper, um, an, an article for Financial Times, and he wrote about it. It's like, hey, let's, um, we, we need to just give up on this Ukraine thing. So he was someone who had previously published, like, a, you know, a, something out of the Rand in the Rand think tank. But the point I'm trying to make is that not everything that the Rand Corporation writes comes a true comes true and is like dictated u.s policy it's a it's a think tank that's been around for a long time and they write all mm-hmm. sorts of shit and like their job so, is yeah. to write like these strategic uh papers about things that the u.s could possibly do to get some strategic edge in a geopolitical landscape it's kind of like a but like a broken it is, clock is a yeah, broken clock is right twice yeah, a day but you, you know, know it like, is so it is compiled it's, it's part of like the evidence like you would use it mm-hmm. in like an entire case but I, that one paper enough, I don't think, um, concludes anything. Yeah. Um, and then the paper, but well, if you read the paper too, it also says that the chances of it of it working, a project like this working, is actually not successful in mm-hmm. trying to pull Kazakhstan away from Russia's orbit. Like the end mm-hmm. conclusion of this says that it won't be successful. Like it most likely will not be successful. Um, if you guys are interested in reading through it. This wasn't like Ukraine in 2014, where there was a very clear there was very clear evidence that the U.S. Was, was involved in throwing um, Yanukovych. You don't have Robert Kagan's wife Victoria Nuland on tape talking about she wanted to replace it, talking about who she wanted to replace uh, Yanukovych with. Mm. But to their defense, these roaming gangs seem to be very well trained. Um, so I understand how this is like the immediate um, reaction or how this pops in your head. Um, the Russians and the government in, in, in Kazakhstan, they really seem to think that this was an attempted color revolution. You know, they're calling it a, a hybrid terrorist attack by um, the words they used was by both internal and external forces aimed at overthrowing a government. Um, also, the government of Kazakhstan has always had a pretty strained relationship with, with the different NGOs in the country that have been, um, you know, there to promote like, you know, democracy and human rights and things like that. Um, you know, the, the alleged connection is that NGOs are said to be fronts from the, for, for the CIA. Now I had sent you over a piece from, um, an investigative, uh, reporter and, and, um, an analyst named Pepe Escobar, and um, you know Pepe Escobar is, is he's he's definitely a conspiratorial uh, journalist as well. Um, who, you know who I've read him in the past and a lot of things, and, and I think he does make stretches sometimes. But I know a lot of his experiences in Central Asia. So um, I sent that over to you, and, and he kind of paints a picture of how it was most likely some it, it was it was U.S. and Israeli and, and Turkish and. British sponsored this mm-hmm. this uh this entire uh operation. Yep. I can read through some of that uh and pull out some of the quotes that we uh wanted to talk about. So uh one bit uh was uh he writes when President Tokiev was referring in code to a single center, he meant a he meant a so far secret US Turk 
Israeli military intel operations room based in the southern business hub of Almaty, according to a highly placed Central Asia intel source. Interesting. Uh, he also writes, in this center, there were 22 Americans, 16 Turks, and six Israelis coordinating sabotage gangs trained in West Asia by the Turks and then ratlined to Almaty. The op st started to unravel for good when Kazakh forces, with the help of Russian CSTO intel, retook control of the vandalized Almaty airport, which was supposed to be turned into a hub for receiving foreign military supplies. Yeah, and then he goes on. Yeah, he goes on to say that the Russians had intel on this prior, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why they were they were so ready to go when this riot started to break out. That they they allegedly had intelligence that there were um, Salafi fighters from Syria in northern Afghanistan ready to be used. So he writes about that, and you know he draws. He's basically saying that you know there were foreign. Um, fighters that were imported into Almaty to uh, escalate the riots into something a lot more deadly. Okay, well then on that Salafi bit, uh, the, he writes, the, the, that's the bulk of the ISIS Khorasan, or ISIS-K, uh, reconstituted near the borders of Turkmenistan. Some of them were duly transported to Kyrgyzstan. From there, it was very easy to cross the border from Bishek and show up in Almaty. That explains, among other things, a record number of preparation drills conducted in late 2021 at the 210th Russian military base in Tajikistan. Hmm. Yeah, and then he goes on to source the Rand Corporation report that, um, you know, that, that other people have been sourcing. All right, so, so he wrote then on that point, every color revolution needs a maximum Trojan horse. In our case, that seems to be the role of the former head of KNB, the National Security Committee, uh, Karim Masimov, now held in prison and charged with treason. Hugely ambitious, Masimov is half Uyghur, and that, in theory, obstructed what he saw as his preordained rise to power. His connections with Turkish intel are not yet fully detailed, unlike his cozy relationship with Joe Biden and son. Hmm. A former Minister of Internal Affairs and State Security, Lieutenant General Felix Kulov, has weaved a fascinating tangled web explaining the possibility uh, of internal dynamics of the coup built into the color revolution. According to Kulov, Masimov and Samir Abish, the nephew of the recently ousted Kazakh Security Council chairman, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, were up to their necks in supervising secret units of, quote, bearded men during, their, during the riots. The KNB was directly subordinated to Nazarbayev, who until last week was the chairman of the Security Council. Uh -huh. So that's what that that's what we're we're getting at, and that's what a lot of um, pretty much a lot of mainstream sources are, are also painting towards that it was uh, Nazarbayev's nephew who was coordinating all of this, right? Okay, so he goes on. Uh, he says, when, when Tokayev understood the me mechanics of coup, he, he demoted both Masimov and Semat Abish. Then Nazarbayev voluntarily resigned from his, uh, they quote, voluntarily resigned uh, from his lifelong chairmanship of the Security Council. Abish then got the post, promoted, promising to stop the bearded men and then to resign. Uh, okay, so a lot of people losing their jobs, uh, potentially not their choice either um but he's moving on so th so that would point directly to nazarbayev tokayev clash it makes sense 
as during his 29-year rule, Nazarbayev played a multi-vector game that was too westernized and which did not necessarily benefit Kazakhstan. He adopted British laws, played the pan-Turkic card with Erdogan, and allowed the tsunami of NGOs to promote an Atlanticist agenda. Tokayev is a very smart operator, trained by the foreign services of the former USSR, fluent in Russian and Chinese. He is totally aligned with the Russia-China, which means fully in sync with the master plan of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Eurasia Economic Union, and the SCO. Tokayev, much like Putin and Xi, understand how this BRI, EA, EU, SCU triad represents the ultimate imperial nightmare and how destabilizing Kazakhstan, a key actor in the triad, would be a moral coup, a mortal coup against the Eurasian integration. Okay, this is making a pretty strong case here. Uh, last, last couple of bits. He writes, Kazakhstan, after all, represents 60% of Central Asia's GDP, massive oil and gas, and mineral resources, cutting-edge, high-tech industries, a secular, unitary, constitutional republic bearing rich cultural heritage. It didn't take long for Togiev to understand the merits of immediately calling the CSTO to the rescue. Kazakhstan signed the treaty way back in 94. After all, Tokayev was fighting a foreign-led coup against his government. Well, so um, the, the the major so the the painting that they're trying to to um, the picture they're trying to paint the paint the picture I was going to say the painting that they're trying to picture um, they're trying to say that um, Tagayev is more aligned with Russia Nazarbayev has been too friendly with the West and um, that's why there was a coup to um, that favored Nazarbayev over Takayev because he's, you know, he's too on board with uh, the BRI and uh, and too close of allies with, with Russia. Um, I saw Pepe Escobar on um, the great, on um, the Moderate Rebels podcast mm-hmm. the other day. He was on it yesterday with Max Blumenthal. And um, I, I, um, well, li- I usually listen to stuff that Max Blumenthal says. Um, so, I don't know. It's interesting. He kind of goes over this article, and it's uh, it's it's an interesting case. Um, but even to, to um, what I was saying before about mainstream outlets have been kind of mirroring, they have mirrored a lot of this information. The New York Times has had um, had wrote this, this um, piece about the power struggle between uh, Dukayev and, and Nazarbayev. Um, they published an article called Kazakhstan Street Battles, Signs of Elite Fighting Each Other. Um, I sent that over to you as well. Yeah, I can read, I can read that part too. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, in it they write, um, Daniil Kislov, a Russian expert on Central Asia who runs for Ghana, a news portal focused on the region, speculated that the chaos was the result of a desperate struggle for power between the feuding political clans namely people loyal to President Tokayev, 68, and those beholden to his 81-year-old predecessor, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. At the height of the tumult on Wednesday, the president announced that he had taken over as head of the Security Council, a job held until then by Mr. Nazarbayev, who stepped down as president in 2019 but retained wide powers and was given the honorary title of El Basi, or leader of the nation. So President Tokayev also fired Mr. Nazarbayev's nephew, Samat Abish, 
as deputy head of the main security service and purged several others close to the former president. The riots in Almaty, Mr. Kislov said, appeared to be an attempt by members of Mr. Nazarbayev's political clan to reverse their eclipse. This was all artificially organized by people who really had power in their hands, he said, adding that Mr. Nazarbayev's ousted nephew seems to have played a major role in organizing the unrest. So it goes on. Uh, it says, uh, Galim Agilulov, wow, that's a name, Agilulov, uh, a human rights activist in Almaty who took part in what began as a peaceful demonstration on Wednesday, said police officers monitoring the protest suddenly vanished around lunchtime. And then his crowd came, he said, an unruly mob of what seemed more like thugs than the kind of people, students, bookish dissidents, and middle-class malcontents who usually turn out for protests in Kazakhstan. He said the mob was clearly organized by crime group marauders, that was in quotes, and surged down main streets towards uh, Akimat, the city hall, setting cars on fire and storming the government offices. Among those who urged the crowd on was Arman, okay, I'm going to try it, Jumageldiev, Jumageldiev, that, that's, I'm going with that. I'm going with <laughs> Poor well, well, he's. it goes on. It says he's known as Armon the Wild. So we'll call him that. Uh, by the reputation of one of his, uh, one of the country's most powerful gangsters who witness, witnesses say prov- provoked much of the violence. All right, Armand, chill out, bro. He gave a frantic speeches on Almaty's central square as the government buildings blazed behind him, calling for people to press the government and make con- concessions and mocking as a coward, Mukhtar Ab- Abliyazov, uh, an exiled tycoon who is bitter personal enemy of the Kazakhstan's longer, longtime former president, Mr. Nazarbayev. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's interesting. So I think that, um, no, at this point, I think there's kind of enough circumstantial evidence to, to suggest that, at the very least, that Nazarbayev's cronies were involved in organizing this. Yeah. I mean, like that that seems to be the, the most consequential evidence that I'm getting yeah. out of all of these things that we're here, because there is a clear delineation of a shift of power, right? Uh, like Tokyev steps up in 2019. He was the former, you know, uh, Speaker of the Senate and the um, Security Council guy. And then he takes the presidency. He lets uh, Nur Sultan chill and, you know, have a little bit of power. Oh, well, a lot of bit of power if you're on the secure, head of the Security Council. But, you know, he gives him that honorary title so that, you know, people don't shake things up too much. But it seems like in the last couple months or, or weeks, he's just been kind of cutting out all of the people that were close to Nur Sultan, right? The rationality behind that is unclear, I think, from everything we've read so far. But, you know, the ob- objectively, it looks like all the people inside of Nur Sultan's orbit are... Um, kind of losing their jobs and losing their power. So, you know, Occam's razor here it does feel like this is an in, like a like an in, internal power struggle, right? Now, the bits about a U.S., U.K., Israeli, Turkish like coup attempt. I mean, I can see that as maybe being a possibility because why wouldn't they take advantage of an internal power struggle? It wouldn't be the first time, right? But I'm not really seeing a ton of evidence about that yet. So I'm like straying away from that because there seems to be enough evidence to suggest that this is an internal power struggle, you know? So like, why do you need to go there? 
Yeah, I'm sort of at that. That's where I'm at, too. Um, that it does seem like there's not a lot of evidence that it was something between um, you know, ruling clans of, mm-hmm. the, of the state. Um, but, I mean, who knows, man? Like, there might be some more smoking gun evidence to suggest that it was Maybe. a it, it was it was coordinated by the west um mm-hmm. unf- i don't know if we're ever going to get that though i don't think like we're not going to get a vi- like a, a a phone call recording of victoria newland on this or maybe mm. we will <laughs> someone maybe. just saying hey like here's who we well, want to replace um um Tukayev with we want N- nazarbayev back in as president like imagine <laughs> that yeah well, I mean, that would shit. Just be fucking crazy. Or like, that we want his, crazy. we want his nephew as president now, and we don't want. Uh, we, we think this guy. Like, I don't think we'll we'll probably get that smoking gun um, type evidence. But let's let's talk about um, what what also is interesting is that there's a Wikipedia page on this already. Yeah, I was like, just going to ask you about long. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's. I was surprised that a Wikipedia page got out so quickly. Of it's like so detailed of events that are so unfolding, and um, it's it's kind of weird. It, it begs the question of who's making these Wikipedia entries. Um, I don't know. So l- l- let's talk about this in more detail because I think you know there's a little bit more color we can add to it to 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 tell the the full story. So um, these protests were apparently peaceful at first which was um, kind of reflected in that New York Times article that the initial protesters were like students and middle-class people, um, bookish people was the word. And that's how the protests were in Syria as well when they first started. That's how the protests were in Ukraine as well. Um, When they first started in 2014, it's, you know, students, young people, um, dissenters, you know, like there's plenty of protests um, in the United States that that are peaceful. Um, you get kind of a big hodgepodge of people. Now, um, what happened is that they eventually turned more violent. So um, the the protesters nor the police, they were using any type of lethal force. But on the night of January 4th, Takayev, he calls a meeting of the country security council, which Nazarbayev usually chairs, and Nazarbayev wasn't present at this meeting. And this is where Takayev, he announces a state of emergency. And then he also announced that uh, Nazarbayev would, be, would no longer be chair of the Security Council. Um, he also um, um, capitulates to the price um, return of, of gas. So they, re- they returned the price of uh, LPG back to what it was. And then he um, then he he said he was going to announce all these different government reforms. So the following day, apparently things returned to normal. So we're talking about the morning of January fifth. Um, there were some clashes between um, protesters and and uh, the police officers there, but they were relatively minor. And then they um, they accept the government's resignation, and then the next morning. Um, things were getting just a lot more normal. Now, what happened was that night, somewhere between, and this is the number that I've read, between ten to 20,000 protesters showed up. So wait, weren't all the demands of the protesters met? Like, didn't they get what they wanted? 
Yeah, exactly. That's what this this is what makes the story so weird because after mm-hmm. a lot of the demands were made and then Nazarbayev is is fired basically um or resigns voluntarily as in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um as there's changes in the, in the government as like a lot of the government is beginning to resign and um a lot of um things are kind of uh capitulated to or at least there's like progress from the protesters and after there is um, kind of a cool down. That's when it re-escalates. So that's when a boatload, you know, at ten to 10, 10 to twenty thousand. I know it's like a really large gap in the in the estimate, but we can just kind of thousands safely of say that thousands of of new protesters arrived, and these new protesters who arrived, these were, were started hunt that they started looting, and um, they started looting hunting shops, and then. Allegedly, they were bringing automatic weapons. There were cars bringing them automatic weapons and, and um, iron rods. At this time, the police flees. And then the rioters, they go, they start launching Molotov cocktails at the at two sides of the city council building. So they surround the city council building. You can look up the city council building. It's burnt down. Um, it, it's fucking crazy. So they burnt this fucking place down with with Molotov cocktails. And then they allegedly um, went to Nazarbayev's, like, residence. They set that on fire. Wait, wait, they set his house on fire? Like, his personal house or, like, the government? I think it's his personal residence. house they set on fire. All right, well, now I'm starting to think it's not Nazarbayev because why the fuck would he burn his house, like, have his people burn his own house down? <laughs> or no, 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 not Nazarbayev. I think it was Takayev's house. Oh, Takayev. Uh, okay, yeah. now I'm back Excuse on me, the Nazarbayev. We got the names wrong. Um, now so now I'm back on the Nazarbayev train. <laughs> yeah. So then they attacked. Um, so then they went to the prosecutor's office. They, this is where they killed. They they um, took the police there who were guarding the prosecutor there, mm-hmm. and they beheaded them. So this is ISIS then, right? I mean, I. It's definitely a calling card of very very like hardcore extremists. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. to start cutting people's heads off. I mean, yeah. I honestly don't even know if this is confirmed yet. That that um, I should probably add that that you know these these allegations that police officers were beheaded. You know, like right. on January sixth, there were allegations that protesters beat up, killed a police officer with a fire extinguisher, and that wasn't true. Like so, you, you know that this is a different country. Hmm. That maybe that's not true, because a lot of. There's a lot of uh, in-between sources between us and Kazakhstan, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So we're not mm-hmm. going to get the full picture. Um, but that's that's the story that, you know, the people, the cops there were being um, detained. The police officers were detained and then they were having their heads chopped off. So, yeah, maybe ISIS. Like that, that would definitely be something that a real hardcore um, crazy fighter would do. Um, and this is, I'm getting a lot of this from um, Euro, Euro, uh, you're a TV. I, excuse me. You're active. <laughs> You're active, which is I think is based out of Brussels, um, mm-hmm. and um, you're right. Among the writers, there were people from outskirts, but also bearded people, Salafists who are very well organized and came in groups of twenty five, split into smaller groups of five. Within these groups, one is a trained militant who commands the other four. Um, and I translated this via Google Translate, so it's not perfect. These are people with combat experience, good physical fitness, and they succeeded very rapidly in overwhelming law enforcement. 
Okay, I got it. It's ISIS. <laughs> like what they're describing as ISIS. It's, of it's a network of um, it probably a leftover, a fighter from yeah. from either Syria it's or a, Afghanistan. Like they're, they're leftover know. leftover fighters. I want to know no. how do they know that they were Salafists and beard, bearded people? How do they know this? That's what I want to know. That's a good question. How did they know this? Because do they have pictures? It, it might. You know? It might have just been the their Arab. You it know. could have just been their Arab. They were like, oh, the Arab guys are walking around their ISIS. And then who knows? Yeah. Maybe that. Maybe the story about um, the heads being chopped off is just theatric, but maybe it's true. Um, right. But what's also real interesting is that they take over the airport on the night of the 5th. Mm-hmm. So the airport was taken over by allegedly 800 rioters. Okay. Um, that's what this article says. And the airport is about um, 12 kilometers from the city center. And then they were bussed there by uh, trucks. Um, and then they they apparently were um, taking drivers and throwing them out of their cars, like Grand Theft Auto style. All right, so I got an interesting theory. So you said that this happened on the night of the 5th to the 6th, right? So January 6th. Yeah. Here's my, here's my conspiracy theory. This was actually organized by the U.S. right-wingers to make the anniversary of the Jan 6 riot at the U.S. Capitol look like a peaceful protest in comparison. Like, I feel sure, like Rachel, yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. I think you Rachel nailed it. Maddow must be saying this right now, I think. Let's, so. let's, I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly what happened. That's that what happened. That's the, the Oath US Breakers or the Oath Keepers, whatever yeah. the hell they're called. They uh-huh. went ahead and they organized this. They organized this. This, um, beheading in Kazakhstan. Be, these beheadings in Kazakhstan. I think that's that's, right. that's a safe theory. I and think and that's you know what? Safe. Some of them had beards. Think about that. Uh, I I have the connection. See, some of them had just beards. beards. I'm just connecting everyone with the beard. Right. So there it is. You, you that's the story. <laughs> anyway, let's get back uh, to hey, the real story. Okay. So um, yeah. Now, they're saying, so word on the street is that there was no resistance from police at the airport. And then the rioters, they took control of the buildings and then they took control of the runways. Um, And then I guess this is where the lines are connected of they were going to take over the airports and they were going to import other um, Salafi fighters. Okay, so this isn't what I'm reading about, like police shooting peaceful protests. I did read a few articles where it sounded like. Kazakhstan's being a total dick right now and shooting peaceful protesters because it seems like the protesters had guns and were allegedly chopping heads off and shit, right? So, well, hey, man, I don't know. Maybe maybe there was some, some police firing on some protesters. Like, I wouldn't be surprised, but... The- I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. What I've been reading is that the aggression was from the protesters first. Like they started, they weren't fired upon until they attacked police headquarters. Um, and that's when yeah, they started fair. firing live rounds fair. at the rioters. But I wonder, that's when I wonder. That still started to pack up to, the, uh, to increase. Yeah, I wonder about that though, because it, I did see like a bunch of water cannons and like other, you know, like tear gas and your, your typical like crowd control shit that police do, you know, with protesters. And I'm not making this, uh, you know, the, I don't think this is necessarily the case because there's a lot of evidence that there were some bearded men that were well trained. But like, I think it's possible generally speaking with protests where police get too aggressive in crowd control and then it does become violent on the protester side you know so like if you're getting sprayed with a fucking water cannon in the middle of winter right you're gonna be a little pissed off about that this wasn't Um, a black lives matter protest like this wasn't like one of those things in new york city where there you know cops were hitting people with cars and stuff and then people got rowdy like this wasn't, and this wasn't just like looting of like Target. This was right. fucking organized. Yeah, eighteen cops like. were killed. Like right. there were no police officers killed in in New York during the summer twenty twenty to twenty. Like this police was, officers killed. People, in like people were getting riots, mur- like, murdered. <laughs> like people were dying. I think yeah. the entire uh, toll of like the the riots of twenty twenty was like. 20 people maybe i'm not sure i'm kind of making that up but i know it wasn't in the hundreds and that was an entire some of them were cops though and some of them i don't i think the the one right so what's that some of them like cops died in those jan six right yeah but the only cop that died died of a cardiac arrest right and it died because protesters beat him up like the story was the (laughs) new what what the news reported on january Mm -hmm. 6th in america on Mm -hmm. Our January sixth was that a police officer was beat to death with a fire extinguisher. That's what the news mm-hmm. reported. Right. There was no truth to that. That that did not happen whatsoever. That was made up. The guy mm-hmm. unfortunately sat tragically died of a cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. and they made it up. They're like this person died, and it was just you know he said she said you know taking things out of context, not reporter reporters being like ha ha we got the right wingers we can throw them in jail. And then right. they they put that on the fucking but he did die. post. But he did die. He did die. He, he did die. It's tragic and it's sad. But like you know, that shit was overblown. Like that wasn't fucking riot. Like that. I mean, yeah, it was a riot. Like, but it wasn't a fucking insurrection. Um, this was a fucking insurrection. This was a real insurrection. This was a real aggressive, fucking organized, chaotic, violent um, um, takeover of the government that did not either that work. either that or the jan 6 riot was just a really bad insurrection <laughs> maybe maybe okay yeah maybe the january 6th was just an awful insurrection right um, they just did it wrong <laughs> like listen man i think it was retarded what those people did but of course come on like let's just be real there's like let's compare the differences between a real violent 
insurrection, insurrection and mm-hmm. you know or i mean is it an insurrection when it's foreign fighters i guess that's a that's like another thing that's or is that just your question yeah well, we don't right. even know if it was foreign fighters or not either we're we're taking that based on yeah you know the reporting of some random your active person like what the fuck do they know you know like I haven't yeah seen and they're based out of brussels so yeah but, so you know, we they, don't know we don't know we have no idea um but yeah we're so this is things get interesting too so they try to break into the um studios of tv channel mir and then the rioters told journalists of mir and i'm having trouble understanding this that they wanted to air a message but were told that that wasn't possible because the button for broadcasting is in moscow so I don't. I didn't really get that. I think there's a translation <laughs> issue. Sorry, the button for broadcasting is in Moscow. Like the button to turn on the cameras for broadcast is in Russia. <laughs> that doesn't really make that much sense to me, unless that that just the literal interpretation that like they literally uh, the. Hey, I'm sorry, man. The button for broadcasting is in <laughs> Moscow. You can't turn on the camera. It's in Moscow. <laughs> so that's funny. Maybe it is. Like does does uh. Does the Kremlin have that much control over their media? Maybe. Um, maybe. <laughs> so the rioters reportedly said, record us and you will air it later. Um, but it is still not known what their message was. Fuck, man. And on January 7th, rioters tried to get hold of the TV tower and um, a heavy exchange of fire was heard for 12 hours until 9 o'clock, but they were not successful. Apparently, taking control of the TV could see TV and radio transmissions covering half the country's territory cut off. With the absence of internet the morning of um, January 5th, this would mean a complete blackout for the population. It could spark mass panic. Right. This also makes it super hard for us to know exactly what's going on here. Like, I want to watch that video. You know, what was that video? What do they look like? Yeah. What are they saying? You know, like, what do they want? Uh, and we don't have that right now. And also, there was like no internet uh, for a minute, and no internet means very little information coming out of the ground, right? So no TikTok videos, no fucking tweets, no nothing, you know, like nothing. And it's super similar to the Tigray crisis when we're covering that one. It's just like, well, we have to try and use these mainstream outlets and hope that they're not totally bullshit, right? But understand that a lot of it might be. You know, it just kind of makes it hard to understand. Um, but things that we do know, you know, uh, are the official like press releases and official statements and things like that from from the people. And and I want to talk a little bit about Tokayev's interpretation of what's going on here. I know that a bit of this was in your draft of our notes initially uh, on this topic, and it really got me thinking. Uh, and I think we can have a little discussion about it. Um, so. Uh, do you want to read that that bit that I pulled from the old notes? Um, where it says Takayev's interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. So, um, so his interpretation is um, is that it was a coup attempt with the, the participation of terrorists who came from abroad with combat experience from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. In his view, the protests were hijacked from January fifth by according. Um, According to him, 20,000 bandits, it is said that many of them have been paid $700 per month to be ready since November to December. All of them have been promised money and looting opportunities. So, yeah, he's, he's claiming that, that, um, that these guys have been planning on doing this for months now and that they're all paid and they're going to be paid in what they could steal. 
Mm-hmm. And and my question that's is, like so is Game just... of Thrones ish, like <laughs> like you'll yeah. be paid in your on your plunder, right? I mean, but paid by who? Because they were getting seven hundred a month, right? And and how and how does he have this information? And you know, I can I can totally see that that the possibility of these protests being hijacked because of the the evidence that we showed, right? They gave, they came they showed, a bunch of people showed up. They were pissed off about gas and other things. They got what they wanted. Looked like it was going better, and then suddenly we see these bearded militants come over and take control and start fucking chopping heads off, allegedly, right? I mean, that does that doesn't sound like a loosely organized protest against high gas prices and like political hierarchy. That sounds like a coordinated yeah. effort, right? But but Tokiev is being super specific here, right, in what he's saying, and he's saying that they were ready since November and they were being paid seven hundred dollars a month. I want to see that evidence before I consider this true, but until then, I feel like this is just government propaganda with maybe some confirmed fishy shit going on. But yeah. it, it's interesting because that's what he's saying, and that is what we can know because people write down what he said. You know? Yeah, so. I, 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 I agree. Like I, that's coming from their their like their intelligence agencies there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you really can't. You know, the government's never really the good guy. The government's always lying. You know, whether it be the U.S. government or whether it be the government of Kazakhstan. Right. So it's start, you know, the state is always lying. Um, so it's very difficult to parse out the truth. Like, we would have to go through, like, every fucking Twitter video that there, that's available <laughs> yeah. to really parse this out. Um, and, you know, we're probably not going to do that. Um, no offense to us, but it takes a lot of time. And we're not professional journalists. Um, now, I guess eyewitnesses are saying that they were very well organized and um you know according to Takayev um you know without the arrival of the CSTO forces you know these terrorists would have also attacked the presidential palace in Nur Sultan and um you know there was this single coordination center um but he then again he didn't really say where it was located and who was behind it so mm-hmm. it's very vague like there was right. like it's the they who um who did it? Right. And then there's, you know, there's three scenarios. You know, there's, um, you know, the first one is the Yakum's Razor. Nazar, the Nazarbayev circle uh, try to get rid of Takayev. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the circle um, includes his family, his daughter, his nephews, his, um, his um, the, the chief of secret services, um, Kareem Masimov. Um, and, you know, these people are all guilty of high treason. And, um, you know, this version doesn't have to exclude that the Nazarbayev circle was using the services of Islamist militants. Like, what's stopping them from just employing these leftover mercenaries from who are in northern Afghanistan at the time or who are in Syria? Um, you know, it's we don't know where they really came from. You know, we're just getting that information that they were close to the border. Um, they were in northern Af- – they, they could have been in northern Afghanistan. They You know, maybe they were in um, – uh, Kyrgyzstan, um, and then they cross the border. But again, it's it's hard to really parse it out. But what's stopping the government from just employing them? Like, do they need the CIA to to make that connection? Do they need the help of Turkish intelligence to make that connection? Right. Um, you know, obviously, the Turkish intelligence definitely has probably the best pipeline of those fighters. So maybe, yeah, you know, maybe maybe this maybe this was purely a Turkish operation. Um, but then. I guess the second version that um, has been circulating in social media has 
that um, is that this was totally a color re- revolution, and this was this was uh, instigated by the U.S. Mm-hmm. and um, its its main impact or its main motivation is that it's a result of just the current tensions between Moscow and Washington over Ukraine, and um, you know that theory is uh, substantiated by arguing that Islamist militants were combating pro-Russian Assad in Syria. Um, And then, you know, the third version is that, you know, the aftermath of the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan is that um, there is just an attempt to destabilize Central Asia uh, using, you know, former Afghan militants. I think, uh, obviously, of the three, the first one is the most likely, right? And we've said this a few times already, but Nazarbayev has been in power for, like, the entire post-Soviet history of Kazakhstan. And, you know, even right up till Tokyo's announcement, you know, saying that Nazarbayev wouldn't be in charge of the Security Council. He was in charge of the Security Council the, the entire time, which, let's be honest here, you're in star- if you're in charge of the military, you're in charge, you know? And he also had that, like, father of the nation type title to, you know, I think it's totally possible that the U.S. used Kazakhstan as a way to stick it to Russia with proxy forces, you know, like by proxy over Ukraine. But like in hindsight, the scale at which this color revolution would distract Russia from Ukraine or like hurt Russia in any meaningful way was super small, you know. So I don't really think at least there's not enough evidence that I'm seeing to suggest that this was U.S. led. Um, Not enough evidence that I'm seeing that it was Turkish led. There's a lot of people saying that it is, but that doesn't mean that that's evidence, you know? Um, And just because maybe they might be interested in doing something like this, doing a color revolution, doesn't necessarily mean that they actually pull the trigger on it. You know what I mean? There seems to be more evidence pointing to the fact that it was like an internal power structure struggle. And then the third one, like, I don't fully understand that third, like, route. Uh, Like, who is attempting to destabilize Asia, Central Asia? Like the Taliban, the U.S., and and more importantly, why? Like, who benefits from it? I, I can, like, I just can't see how follow the, the Taliban, money. Yeah, seriously, I can't see how the Taliban would benefit from it. They just ended a major war with the U.S. Why would they start one with Russia by fucking around in Central Asia, right? And I also can't see how the U.S. would benefit from it, given my response to the second option. I just, it doesn't seem like it's consequential enough to be worth the trouble you know so it it could be the first one i'd offer a fourth one uh the fourth one would be it's a false flag from tokayev to solidify power hey that would be the m night Shyamalan twist right yep we'll see we'll see how how tokayev makes it out of this particular thing maybe he did it to like appease the russia and china you know, um, parties, right? Maybe well, that's like, what hey. that's what I saw in the New York Times. Um, mm-hmm. There was like kind of a hint that hmm, it seems like this could have been coordinated by Russia. <laughs> um, it was like there was like some lines and some New York Times coverage of that. Um, I mean, if we're if we're just spitballing here, if we're just spitballing here, you know, yeah, then we have to bring it up too, right? Like it's totally possible that Tokayev was like, you know what, I'm going to consolidate power. And I'm going to make my neighbors very happy by doing so, right? And so he meets with Putin and he meets with Xi and he's like, yo, you know, this dude, Nur Sultan, you know, he's cozying up to the West and he has all this power in the Security Council. 
I'm going to I'm going to do some shit to make it look like he tried to, you know, do an insurrection. So I'm going to do this false flag. We're going to use these salafist fighters. It's going to be real nasty, right? And then then you guys can come in, flex your muscle about how awesome you are, you know, Russia, and you're going to come in and swoop and save the day in and out real quick. So that'll make you look like a gangster. And it'll, it'll promote your power. And China, I'm already friends with you. I speak Chinese, you know? So you can go ahead and keep doing your Belt and Road Initiative right after I have, you know, consolidated power. That's a possibility. But like me just spitting bullshit like this, like all of these options are just bullshit until we get more information, you know? Yeah. And the one well, that we have the most information about is the first one, which is just that it's an internal power struggle. Yeah. I, I, I kind of on, I'm on the same page as you. Um, now I have a good segue because we're talking about uh, false flags. Okay. So you know you hear that um, the White House has been claiming that Russia has been planning a false flag right now to uh, invade Ukraine. So, right. so some big so some major stories came out with uh, between Russia and Ukraine and mm-hmm. man, it certainly seems that. It's really at its height right now. It's getting it's getting very nerve wracking to see this continue to go on. This gamesmanship that also has the potential to become very deadly if there were some type of military conflict between the United States and Russia, because mm-hmm. Russia at this point has been saying they're not fucking around anymore. Um. They've draw they've drawn some very clear lines and the United States has just been saying, No, we're not doing this. And, you know, those lines are Russia wants the United States to put in paper that they're gonna stop getting you trying to get Ukraine into NATO. And then the US says, No. But it's funny because even it's like Ukraine's not gonna join NATO anyway. So why not just put it in paper? I mean, like they've they, been trying to do it. Since they want to have this pipe, this pipe dream for them, right? Like they're going to join, that they're going to be part of NATO. But you know, the other NATO members don't even really want them in NATO. So I think it's just fucking crazy. And now Russia is saying, "Hey, all right, well, you know, we we can throw our weight around. Like, listen, we can throw we can throw um, you know weapons in Latin America, in right. Venezuela. Like, mm-hmm. what what are you going to stop us? How, like, how do you like it?" How do you like it? What if we put weapons in Canada? They didn't say that, but you know they're saying that they put weapons in in Venezuela, or they can yeah, put bases true. in Venezuela, mm-hmm. which is a lot closer to us than Ukraine. Well, they have a pretty good relationship with Venezuela too. Yeah, so. well, because they're both ostracized countries, and you're kind mm-hmm. of forcing countries to. You know, we did an episode on on Russia and China mm-hmm. um, last week, and you know the reason, the number one reason why they're forced to cooperate is because. They are ostracized so much. So you're kind of forced to band together when you're ostracized from the rest of the world. So you're kind of pushing these nations together, even though they don't really have that much in common, um, like culturally at least. And, you know, there wouldn't be this relationship with them. It's like the two weird kids Mm -hmm. in school. You know, they always end up finding each other and sitting at the same lunch table. That's kind of what it's like. The two weird kids are put together. Um, well, at least you know, the, the kid Russia who eats his boogers and the kid who fucking picks his nose. The kid who Ew. eats his boogers and the kid who, like, I don't know. I'm being just mean right now. 
Um, who has a special list of names. <laughs> <laughs> the kids no, who, dude, but the, the Venezuela-Russia connection actually makes more sense, like, in terms of, like, an alliance or whether, you know, overt or, or covert. Because as we were talking about with Russia and China, there's a lot of trouble with them creating an alliance. And it's primarily that, like, neither country would want to be this, uh, the junior partner in that relationship. Not, neither of them would want to concede in that respect. And also even equality in a partnership like that might be troublesome as well. Um, but Venezuela, Russia, Russia would definitely be the senior partner there, right? They definitely have more money. They definitely have more guns. They're definitely better in every respect by every measure. So why wouldn't Russia want to make that call? And it would benefit Venezuela because then they'd have somebody financially and militarily backing them up against the United States. So that is actually more likely than a Russian uh, Russia China alliance and then well, to well, your point what happens if they start putting strategic bombers in Venezuela what are we going to do about it how are we going to like it I think Hi. that the United States may nuke Russia or that yeah. so I, I just want to get back to this so there was a claim that Russia was planning a false flag attack which mm-hmm. was published by Natasha Bertrand now, Natasha Bertrand, she works for CNN. She's the same person that came out with the Russian bounty story, uh. which was not, which was 99% chance completely bullshit. Intelligence agencies even came out after that saying it was low confidence that mm-hmm. that was true. So, right. you know, someone just feeds these these reporters um, with these just conspiracy fucking things. whatever. Like, they're whatever right. they want them to report, they just feed them. They're like, okay, like, because they don't, there, there's, there's very few like journalist anymore there's like 10 of them in the world there's really like there's like matt taibbi glenn grinwald um gareth porter like there's really not many journalists out there who like do investigative journalism you know there's a couple of people for buzzfeed are actually pretty good um there's there's a couple people for intercept who are good too but it's like not there's really few of them and they they especially do not work for cnn so, you know, they get bitch stories and they fucking report them without any kind of background. Or they're just like, okay, I got my CIA contact. They're going to tell me the report that Russia is planning a false flag. I'll put that in the paper in B News. And, like, <laughs> we know that's not true. Like, we know that's most likely complete horseshit. And then, right. you know, there is a, another story that came out that the CIA has been training um, – Ukrainian paramilitary groups to like ex- explicitly kill Russians. Um, Yahoo News just released a story on on that, um, but you know we've known that all along that that that's been going on. You know, I call me a peacenik, but can't we just make a compromise as a country to say, hey, listen, why don't we just draw some lines and then we'll just respect people's fear of influence. The United States, listen, we're going to have our sphere of influence over all of Western Europe, and we're actually going to have our sphere of influence over um, the northern, you know, Europe, the northern um, Soviet, ex-Soviet states. So Latvia and Lithuania, those states are going to be in our influence. Your sphere of influence can be in Central Asia and um, Ukraine and Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. Um, then China, your sphere of influence could be over North Korea and, um, and uh, Taiwan. And then the U.S., our sphere of influence is going to be the rest of the world, like Japan, <laughs> yeah. the, like Southeast Asia, um, mm-hmm. you know, all of the Western Hemisphere. Like, that's mm-hmm. our sphere of influence. Like, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And I think that 
you can work that out for the U.S. because we get more of it. (laughs) Yeah, well, you get such a larger chunk of the world, and it's not really capitulating that much. And Russia and China, you know, if there was a war with there, that probably would be the time where China would invade um, Taiwan if they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if they can logistically do it that quickly to to subsequently do it when Russia would potentially invade uh, Ukraine. But that's what at least all the experts are saying, right? Um, yeah, well, that's what they're trying to say might happen. But we would, yeah. we've done so many episodes on Taiwan, we'd see it coming. Yeah. It'd be very hard not to notice that they're about to do that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, just to go back, though, and I just want to talk about like the current political situation, I think, that um, Joe Biden is in. Because Joe Biden is, um, see, I, I have a different perspective on Joe Biden, I think, than a lot of people do. I think that he is um, he's old and feeble, definitely. I don't think he's as out of it as people say he is, but he's definitely mm-hmm. old and weak right now. And okay. um, right now he's in like a political uh, lose-lose type situation because he's going to get – he over the past like couple of weeks, over the past you know couple of months, um, he's taken some major political hits, so – you know the yeah. the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know that could have been a win, but it ended up it ended up being somehow being a loss. It ended up being weird. a loss because mm-hmm. of you know mainly just the whole Afghan um, charade imploded in his presidency. Like everything mm-hmm. came, all the chickens came to roost in August of twenty twenty one when yeah. the entire world who, who may have not been paying attention to how big of a sham the afghan war was it just it, it just was shared with the world that right. we've been literally Dude. pumping trillions of dollars into a garbage can like not to say afghanistan's a garbage can but i'm saying the making the the point the that we were to, throwing to the money away we were them. burning the money mm-hmm. people were stealing like it was just complete and utter bullshit and that just imploded on them and then to make things to heighten the the um the negative press is that Tragically, there was a terrorist attack that killed 13 U.S. military personnel, um, 12 mm-hmm. Marines, or I think 12 Marines and one uh, naval officer. 13, 13 Americans died during the evacuation. And um, obviously, that's incredibly tragic. And, you know, I don't think if that, if that doesn't happen, that may go off in history as the most unbelievable airlift of all time right as far as what they did with one landing strip Mm -hmm. like it's kind of ridiculous like when you really have to go back and you look at they were able to um because they gave up evacuate so so many people with one Mm -hmm. landing strip with one piece of pavement and like damn good job i mean like jesus like what it like that like it really shows you what the U.S. military is capable of the fact that they are logistically able to evacuate that many people. Now the story is: is why is there one landing strip? Like why is there one? Right. <laughs> like that's the exactly. that's the scandal. But you mm-hmm. know, it, it was pretty amazing what the U.S. military was able to achieve um, evacuating that many people. Um, you know, I think maybe that that if that doesn't look if that so if that's not such a horrible image, and if. The Biden administration wasn't saying how, you know, the, the Afghan forces were able to were going to be able to um, um, oppose the Taliban for at least like a couple of months. 
no, that doesn't go down. You know, if they if that if that country collapses in a whimper, rather than um, on the national spotlight, it probably doesn't look as bad on Biden's approval because that's when Biden's approval went from the positive to the negatives, and then right. a bunch of things have added on that. Now, um, the fact that he's not going to get Build Back Better in, um, his um, COVID mandates have been blocked by the Supreme Court. Um, his approval rating right now from a, Quinp- a Quinnipiac poll was like 33 percent which is very low which is incredibly low so now we're dealing in a situation where biden i don't think he necessarily wants to escalate tensions he himself i i think biden has made a lot of mistakes in his career in foreign policy and he's been burnt so much by experience and when i say burnt by experience his own son the war that he was the whip for the iraq war too dies from cancer because he's stationed at a burn pit. His good son dies of cancer uh, because he's stationed near a burn pit, a war that he really was a key seller of that war. He's the whip who um, got the Democrats to basically vote for that war. And his, he lost his son doing that. Ever since then, he became a lot more... Um, uh, tepid on foreign policy as far as being a lot more rational. And I think he's seen so many mistakes um, as far as like funding, um, you know, Salafist groups in Syria and um, escalating tension. So he got, he didn't, he didn't agree with Libya. Um, so he, this is a guy who's been burnt so much that I don't think he really wants to get in any type of international crisis um, at all. But, he, you know, he makes the claim that the U.S. will not go to war with Russia over Ukraine. He basically said it's not worth American lives, which is good. Um, but you know that the corporate press are the real warmongers, and mm-hmm. they're going to hold his feet to the fire and not let them make any type of compromise as far as with Russia because it will be political suicide. And it's not that Americans would care if the U.S. made compromises with Russia. No American would care. Like, like some I, Americans would care, but they don't. Very know. few Americans <laughs> give a, give a flying crap about what's going on in Ukraine. Like, I'm, there's like a 200 people in America who care about that. There's right. very few. But right. the corporate press will just be like, "All right, well, if he's not going to give us what we want in um, in Ukraine and Russia, we're just going to hammer him on other stuff that he's that he's failing on." Right. So. I think he's in a that political situation where there's not really good any good options. And Anthony Blinken and, and uh, Jake Sullivan are nikim poops. They're just nikim poops. They're just like weak, um, you know, neoliberal, established, not impressive people. So they're kind of boxed into being uh, to not making a compromise with them, even though the stakes are just so unbelievably high. So. Um, I know. I, I mean, guess we'll see what happens. I think the U.S. will probably have to cave or find a way to keep the status quo going. It's going to be difficult. I mean, my bit on this is that I think you're absolutely right on, on like everything you said about Biden. And I think that, you know, in my opinion, I think the U.S. needed somebody or needs somebody like Biden who has been burned like that, that can exercise yeah. a more sober, you know, foreign policy because I actually think that he's doing the right thing here. I think it was the right thing to continue the pull out of, of Afghanistan, 
did he fuck it up yes but like do it yes and he should get the credit for that you know like keep doing it sticking by it despite the fact that his entire party was trying to make it different um and and on ukraine i think he's absolutely right being like nope not touching that you know we're not we're not going to war over that fuck that you know that that's absolutely 100 percent the correct thing correct thing to say and maybe he ends up being a one-term president over this but in my opinion he was exactly i think what we needed in this moment we needed a rational sober like somebody who's seen some shit to be like nope we're not doing that well here's the thing i like the fact that he's feeble and weak (laughs) i like having a feeble and weak president yeah like i kind of i kind of find i find the appeal in that you know, I, I think a lot of times the White House is less hawkish than its its special interest groups and a lot of the weird foreign policy. Like because of people who get into foreign policy and work at think tanks and I do the who are advising people, they're weirdos. They're weirdos right. whose life depends on their career depends on having these like complicated relationships with other countries. So that's that's their incentive to keep these complicated relationships complicated. But the people in the White House, the people who are elected, they have to they have to face the consequences, especially the president. They have to face the consequences when things go wrong. So, you know, um, I think they're typically more sober minded than the people who are advising them. And then, um, you know, the corporate press is just is uh, completely inhabited by, you know, these weirdo think tank monsters that, you know, want to want to push the U.S. and Russia into a very dangerous situation and you know mm-hmm. that dangerous situation isn't like this is not i'm not being hyperbolic that dangerous situation is a nuclear war like right. what how on earth is fighting russia in a nuclear war over ukraine which is like what do we want their agriculture like what what is this we want their the breadbasket of europe or something like what why the hell do we do we care and you may say, like, hey, man, if you're Ukrainian and you hate Russian influence in your country and Russian influence is keeping Ukraine from um, developing into the Western world, well, you know, I hate to tell you, but I don't care enough for for the the world to risk nuclear war. Like, it's just I personally just don't care enough. Like, yeah, I mean, good luck you to you. I hope you, get own, the, I hope, you know? hope you shed them. I hope you shed the influence out. But um, it's just not worth going to um escalating such the the play this game is such high stakes yeah i mean i hear that that's that's my rant so i'll I'll spare you any more of that i think i think i'm with you on that man to be honest um Um, you know my heart does bleed for the people but you know they got to find out ways to do it internally on their own That, that country's government that state needs to find a way to provide for their people a a more lucrative option than Russian involvement or US military aid. Yeah, I think a uh, former intelligence guy from Ukraine um, just came out and said like what the hell's going on right now? Like Ukraine is just becoming a a, a depot uh, for weapons. Mhm. Like a former I forget his title but He's like, it's like well, Ukraine just becoming like a like a depot for weapons. Like this is this is not going to work out well. Um, and um, I don't know. I think this could get dangerous, but I guess we will see. I think um, you know, no one really knows what's going to happen. 
like all the experts are like we don't really know what's gonna go <laughs> like, we've, like we're, we're, we're it's like not no one can really interpret what it's unknown what's gonna happen next yeah mm-hmm. so we'll we'll see Hopefully, we'll be living to watch and uh, do another episode of Bro History next week. <laughs> There's a nuclear war. Because <laughs> we're well, no, well, you're safer than I am. Oh, we'll you got see. out. <laughs> I'm in the hot spot. They're not going to take out Puerto Rico. Yeah, they're not hitting San. We have a new host. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to turn into a liberal podcast after you're gone. <laughs> <It's> gonna, <laughs> after Henry died in a nuclear bomb. Time for me so to getting, make you all join Antifa. <laughs> this is going to be a, now we're an Antifa network. Yeah, um, Antifa San Juan. <laughs> That's funny. All right, um, you want to end this thing? Yeah, man. All right, um, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, if you want to support the show, you can rate and review the podcast. Rate us on iTunes, and if you're listening on Spotify. Uh, make sure you rate us on Spotify because it's a new feature where you can rate the podcast on your Spotify app. So do that. It helps us grow, and we really do appreciate it. And most of all, we appreciate you giving us time every single week to listen to us uh, talk about things that you know we're not really qualified to talk about, but we do it anyway. <laughs> and then you can also join us on Patreon if you want to um, you know, join our Slack community. It's another way to support our show. It's our Patreon. And... Um, is there anything else that we should add before we, we wrap this one up? No, man. I think that's about All it. Right. I think this was a good episode. All right, guys. See you next week. Peace. Peace. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.